Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Lost in Science for another week where we spend half an hour on your radio talking all things science. My name is Claire and this week I'm going to be talking about a relationship that you don't often hear about. It's a much maligned insect. People don't like wasps. People do don't like them as much as bees or, you know, they're not as, they're not as cute. Often they get into your house and they, yep. you know, they make their own nests and then they might sting you on the face a couple of times yep. or something like that. They get into your can of soft drink. <laughs> well, there, there are lots and lots of kinds of wasps. Let's there there yeah, are lots that. of wasps, but I, I, ha- I, f- I feel like they are maligned unfairly because um, they actually play, have a really important relationship with, with the fig. And if we didn't have wasps, then we wouldn't have figs. And figs are pretty awesome. Okay, so so we keep that wasp. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to talk about this very, very special relationship between the fig and the wasp. Chris, like an Aesop's fable. <laughs> yeah, Fig yeah. and the wasp. Yes, well, me, I am, I'm talking about something completely different. I am going to have a bit of a story about the wisdom of crowds and the foolishness oh. of experts. Or a.k.a. how um, Chris completely uh, <laughs> nerded up his office footy tipping competition and applying sort of some, yeah, some scientific thought to it. Right, and now do you have an office full of people who love you or hate Oh, no, they, you? They, they hate me already. That's <laughs> fine. <laughs> um, and Stu? Uh, well, I am talking about one of our eternally favourite topics on Lost in Science, washing your hands. Oh, lovely. There's, there's a recent decision by the Food and Drug Administration in the United States to ban certain kinds of soap, and I'm going to talk about why they did that. Right. Is it the antibacterial soap? It is, yeah, antibacterial soap. So they've just cool. announced a ban, and some people are not happy about it, but uh, more on that later. You know, I love strange relationships in the animal world. You That's made a movie about it, if I recall. Yeah, especially wasps. Yeah, I made yeah. a movie about weird relationships with, with wasps. It was definitely harking to the stereotype of the wasp being the villain yeah, in that the particular... parasitic wasp. The parasitic yeah. wasp, wasps, yeah. There are a lot of, lot of parasitic wasps. Yeah, yeah. You don't see yeah. pa- parasitic in front of many other things except maybe twins, but yeah, wasps. <laughs> <laughs> and like I said, I think... I think wasps um, can be quite maligned yep. um, unfairly, unlike bees, you know. Everyone loves bees. Oh, bees get such good press. Bees knees. Yeah, bees. yeah. Oh, the bees are dying oh, out. Save oh, the bees, save, save the bees. bees. Yeah. yeah, but no one cares about the other pollinators, no. the hard workers, yeah. the wasps. Do wasps make honey, though? Oh, that's the thing. It's yeah. all about the honey, isn't yeah, it? It isn't about yeah. the pollination. It's, it's utterly selfish. It is utterly selfish. So recently I've learned that wasps are vital for keeping our rainforests well-fed and productive, and all because of their symbiotic relationship with figs. So the fig tree and the fig wasp share a long and unique mutualistic association. So that's just another word for symbiotic um, or mutually beneficial. Mm. Yeah, it, it benefits them both equally. 
The figs depend on the wasps to make their seeds and distribute their pollen. And in turn, the fig tree acts as sort of like this womb where the fig wasps can reproduce and a safe place that their little um, fig wasp babies can grow up. So the fig, the fig itself is like a wasp nursery. It's like a creche for wasps. <laughs> Yeah. What's a crash? Ross, what? Try, say, try saying that three times. No. Crash. So is this like all kinds of figs? Like this can include the figs you'll get at your local grocery store. Yeah. AKA when, if I eat a fig, I'll be worried I'm going to find a wasp inside it. I will get to that later because right. that was the, that was the um, first question yeah. that I had as well. Okay. And I had to do a bit of research, but you're going to have to listen to a bit more science before you okay. get that okay. answer. Okay. okay. Wow. Yep. So okay. put down that fig. Right. <laughs> This relationship isn't new. Scientists have dated back uh, 65 million years. So we're talking about a time that T-Rex was still reigning terror on Earth. Um, figs and fig wasps had this relationship happening. And over the millennia, both the wasps and the figs have adapted to each other. So, for instance, wasps and seeds, fig seeds, take a similar amount of time to develop. So they've just like, it's just totally, they're totally in sync. And each specific... Um, fig tree has a very specific wasp. So how does the relationship work? Imagine uh, a female wasp just flying around carrying a little bit of extra luggage in in that it's got a bit of pollen just hanging out in its pollen sacs. She then gets to an immature fruit, so an immature fig, and can fit inside and there she deposits the pollen that she's taken from where she was and fertilizes the flowers of the fig. Yeah, so you never actually see the fig flower because the fig flower is enclosed, enclosed in the fig. Enclosed yeah, in so the fig, yeah. yeah. The outside of the fig is sort of the inside of the flower, but the inside of the flower is inside the fig. But if the wasps grow up inside the, the fig fruit, whatever kind of thing, yeah. then for this, this lady wasp to have the pollen... Then she would have had to visit a flower. She wouldn't come from inside a flower because the flower comes. Oh, so oh, okay. So she then, um, once she leaves, she goes to um, a male, a male flower before she then goes okay, back gotcha. to a fruit. Right, yep, right. yep. So she picks up the pollen from a male flower. Right. Yep. Once she's in this juvenile or immature fig fruit, she lays her eggs in the female flowers using these long tubes called the ovipositors. Um, and the mother wasp, she only has 24 hours to live after that once she um, lays her eggs. But before she dies, like any good mother, she ensures the survival of her babies. And she does that by injecting this chemical into the flowers that transforms them into fat rounded structures, almost like a fairy godmother in Cinderella transforming a pumpkin into a carriage. She she transforms the fig into something called a gall. Oh, right. Yes. Yes. And so then when her eggs hatch, um, these galls provide food and shelter for the young offspring and, as we were saying before, turn into fig wasp nurseries. The young wasps grow to adulthood, um, never knowing anything but the fig. Uh, they even mate with each other, which is sort of gross. They're actually really inbred. And then, and at that point, the males and the females go their separate ways. So let's start with the males. They're actually born blind and wingless, and they're not long for this world. So once they mate with the females, their last role is to bite through the fruit into the outside world and let the females out. Everyone's got a job. Everyone's got a job. Everyone's got a, In the world of the wasp, yeah. everyone has a job. 
And that's the yeah, with their purpose complete, they 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 then just die inside the fruit. Meanwhile, they get to see the outside world like they never get to see. No, they, they do only... get to see. They bite through and they see a glimpse of the sun. They get well, they, because they're blind, <laughs> they so they don't. Oh no, they don't. That's right. Maybe they feel the wind on their little faces or something. <laughs> Meanwhile, the female wasps, yep. newly liberated from the fig crash, yeah, um, go on to collect pollen from the male flowers, like okay. I was telling yeah, yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they stuff the pollen into those specialised pollen sacks located above the abdomen and um, go in search of another immature fig. And then they only have 24 hours to live after that. So um, it's a pretty quick – it all happens pretty quickly. The whole life cycle is only about two months and it means that fig wasps ensure that these fig trees are producing fruit all year round. So as a result, in rainforests, uh, many birds and animals that depend on figs have a secure – um, food source all year round just because of these wasps. Isn't that amazing? Pretty amazing. Yeah. So all well and good, but to get back to your question about what is going – like what about the males? Um, what the hell happened to oh, I the have, dead I have male questions. I have wasps. plenty of questions. <laughs> what happened to the dead male wasps? Yeah. Remember they to them? got stuck in the fruit and died. Does that mean we're all eating wasps when we eat figs? Yeah, it. The answer is no. Oh, <laughs> well, so when you said yeah, I thought maybe the answer was yes. <gasps> that was confusing. You aren't yeah. exactly. You aren't. I mean, it's sort of yes and no. You aren't exactly eating the male wasps. So, the crunchy parts that you eat when you bite into a fig are not male wasps. They are fig seeds. Okay. Yes. So once the immature fruit is pollinated, it produces digestive enzymes that break down the dead male wasps. So they're reabsorbed into the fig fruit. So in some ways, I guess you are eating dead male wasps. They've just been... Recycled. Recycled, yeah. Nature's nature's recycling plant. And I think I'm okay with that. Um, By the look on your face, Chris, you are not okay Uh, with that. I have have feelings about that. Yeah. (laughs) I need to process Does that this. Mean vegans can eat figs or not? That's a really good question. I guess we'll have to ask a vegan. If there are any vegans out there, please tell me if you eat figs or not. Or if you're going to stop now. Since March of this year, I've been running a bit of a, a six-month-long science experiment. Did you have ethics approval for this, Chris? I, I look, you know, it was just, it was, it was not, doesn't require ethics approval, really, I guess. <laughs> it was, yeah, it's a science experiment masquerading as workplace camaraderie, I guess we could say that. Yeah, yeah, plus that's, ethics is important. Look, I did make, I did make one mistake. I'm not the greatest experimental, experimenter. I'll explain that later. Okay. Um, but yeah, this is, uh, the results of this experiment are finally in. And this was an experiment in the great Australian workplace pastime of footy tipping. It tells you something, and also it tells you something about the wisdom of crowds and the, the lack of wisdom or the, or the foolishness of experts. Now, you may remember a few weeks ago we talked about the Dunning-Kruger effect. Oh, yeah. And that was the thing where the less you know about something, the less you actually know how little you know. Yeah. So basically it means that the, um, the incompetent are overconfident because they don't know how little they know. Now, this is a bit different because this is about experts, but it turns out they are also overconfident and tend to overestimate their knowledge of things, particularly when it comes to making predictions about the future. 
That's no. generally what a prediction is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we won't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, are these experts making predictions in their field of expertise? Yes. Oh, yes. okay. And this has been studied in a number – there have been a number of studies on this topic because it is quite interesting. There's a political scientist who he called Philip Tetlock. He ran an experiment over 20 years. He wrote a book about it um, where he basically asked kind of – political experts to make predictions about world events and this sort of thing. Uh, and they basically, they did worse than chance. Um, wow. They, you know, and it's, it's, and it's kind of exposed, you know, I guess the cognitive biases there. There's also been some studies done with, um, there have been a number of studies done in the field of finance. There was one that was published in October 2014, where they basically found that financial experts generally don't have any better success. They're not richer than everybody else, except, well, they do a bit better if they're, about the the funds that they manage themselves, they're managing funds. Like if they've got inside knowledge, which perhaps is a bit, yeah, that's the only thing where they seem to do better is when they kind of have like so, a sounds kind of dodgy. Yeah, it sounds kind of dodgy. Actually, super when you dodgy. Put it that way. Look, so when you look at it that way, it's kind of comforting to know that the financial experts aren't that good. But it's also kind of disturbing because you think you should study something, you become an expert. Yeah. Surely you should be able to know more. Mm. But as I said, it's it's cognitive biases. Human beings are particularly bad at predicting random events and understanding things like probability. You know, we don't really understand randomness. Um, the whole the whole game of prediction really is not accepting randomness, but basically saying, yeah, I can figure it out. I can figure out the secret. I can work out what's really going on. Um, there is an experiment, a famous experiment that was done where they had a rat in a maze and they have food. They had two branches of the maze and they put food in um, the different branches. So you didn't know exactly where the left or the right branch where the food was going to be, but it was in the left branch 60% of the time and the right branch 40% of the time. Now, the rat pretty soon figured out that it was more likely to be in the left branch. And so it would always go to the left branch and it would be right 60% of the time. But um, college students who are watching it, they tried to predict, they tried to work out the patterns. And so they were basically wrong about 50% of the time. <laughs> so the rat did better by just basically accepting that I'm going to play the odds, whereas the human's going, no, nah, I can beat the odds. And as a result, they did worse. Um, there's also other things like we don't understand. So here's a, here's a famous example. This is the Linda problem. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a story about Linda. Oh, yeah. Okay, Linda is, she's 31 years old. She is single. She's outspoken. She's very bright. Now, uh, at at college, she majored in in philosophy. And as a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice, and she also took part in anti-nuclear demonstrations. Now, so if I look at now what Linda is doing today, is it more likely that Linda is a bank teller or that she's a bank teller who is active in the feminist movement? A bank teller that's active in the feminist movement. But that's wrong because <laughs> that's two things. Oh. So she's more likely to be a bank teller than a bank teller plus something else. Even if she's likely oh, to be in the yeah. feminist movement, she's still more likely to be the yeah. one. Yeah. So something else like, and in the feminist movement. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's, yeah, it's, that's the thing. Even people make that mistake all the time. We don't think about the way the probabilities actually work. We just go look at the data and say, oh, for my preconceptions, that matches my picture or something. You look for a pattern when it's actually the rules of probability say something different. So counter to this idea of that expert knowledge, it can be quite incorrect. There is the wisdom of crowds, which you may have heard of. It was um, basically first pointed out by, uh, in the early 20th century, by Francis Galton. Sir Francis Galton, he was kind of a polymath statistician and stuff. Supposedly, the story he told it, it was in 1906, he was at a country fair and he came across a competition where he had to guess the weight of an ox. Basically, what happened, he took then, once the competition was finished, he took the 787 guesses that the, the good country folk had made and he calculated the average and the average came to 1,197 pounds. The actual weight of the ox was 1,198 pounds. And so he published this in, in the journal Nature. 
um, this insight that basically all these people guessing had kind of narrowed in on the right answer. And this thing has been put to practical effect. Uh, the US Navy in 1968, they lost a submarine. Uh, it was sunk. I mean, they, you know, they, they didn't just lose it. Yeah, they yeah. Didn't, oh, where did we put that submarine? <laughs> so, and they, they try to narrow down the search areas. What they did, they just ask a whole lot of different people with diverse backgrounds uh, and experience to guess the location. And they got Get it within out. 220 yards. Okay, so how does this apply to footy tipping? Okay, so if this theory is correct, then what you would find is that the experts you'd expect them to do quite badly. And the crowd should do better. But how do we harness the wisdom of crowds? Well, best we can do is essentially to just look at the, the betting odds, the bookies' odds. Uh, so that's essentially, like, as you get closer to the game, it's driven, the odds are driven by what people are money, where they're placing their bets. And so it's kind of getting the popular consensus on what the winner is going to be. Yeah. So, yeah, I, did, I tried this for an entire footy season, except when the odds were line ball. Sometimes you get them when they had the same odd for each one. And <clears throat> then so I you- use a um, – Swinburne University has a computer program which tries to make predictions as well. So when it was line ball, instead of flipping a coin, I used the Swinburne University computer prediction. Mm-hmm. And the result, I got 143 games right um, out of possible 198. Wow. doesn't sound that good. But if we compare it to a panel of experts, say if you look at the Age newspaper, they have their 24 little tipsters that they have there. I beat all of them except one who was former Essendon footballer, Matthew Lloyd. He got 144. However, I did say I had made a mistake. There was one weekend, one around four it was, where I forgot until like halfway through Saturday afternoon to put my tips in. And so, I, oh no, I forgot my footy tipping. So I had to get online and do it then. So I missed four games in that. Uh, now I've gone back and had a look at the stats for those games. And if I had have used my system, I would have got three of those four correct, which would have put me up to 146. So I would have beat all the ages experts just with this simple system. Wow. Yeah. You must be feeling pretty smug. Well, this is the interesting thing. So I didn't... Although I did all right, I reckon, um, my performance was about 74% accurate, but it's still just a random probability thing. So clearly by random chance, there should be plenty of people who beat me as well. And in our office competition, I came third. I didn't come first. I came third in our office. Really? Okay. Which perhaps says not something so about- Not anymore. Well, I'm not surprised. <laughs> you know, I actually, the rate I got right is probably what you expect historically from these odds. Yeah. It's around that 74% mark. So it's quite um, legitimate, but some people by chance are going to get more than that. Yeah. But it is, I think, telling that the experts still did work. Worse than a panel of, of you know, ordinary people. Mm. Look, if this doesn't always work. The crowd is not always 100% right. I should point that out. I mean, you could look at Donald Trump as an example of that. They haven't f- voted yet. They haven't voted yet. But for it to work best, you do need you do need a diversity of backgrounds. You can't just get a whole bunch of the same people. So if you ask all the supporters of one footy team and got them as your crowd, you'd probably find a bit of a biased result. Similarly, ideally, you want everyone to be guessing independently. And this is what's something you don't get with mm. the, um, the odds because – you know, people are kind of looking what other people have put on. They're influenced by the bookies originally, their first yeah. guesses. And so then you don't want to get this kind of consensus where everyone narrows in and goes, oh, I think it's around this. And everyone kind of agrees what it's going to be. You want independent voting effectively and then average all of those. But yeah, the moral of the expert really is that the experts don't know anything when it comes to making random predictions. So just get a bunch of non-experts together and they will do a better job. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to A Lost in Science. So, Claire and Chris, have you washed your hands today at all? I have washed my hands today. Yeah. yeah I've washed my hands as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah. And, and a couple of times. Did, did you use soap? Yep. Yes. Yes. And what kind of soap did you use? Um, I used that um, that soap that sort of... Liquid soap. Liquid soap, yeah. Liquid soap, it, but all, yeah. Or, or, did it have anything added to it or is it just... Air. Foamy. It was already foamy. Foamy, oh. yeah. Yeah, it was like right. pre-foamed soap. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I yeah. Just, I'm just asking because obviously... 
good thing to wash your hands. It stops it you getting viruses and all sorts of things. Stops you getting food poisoning and all sorts of horrible things that can go wrong. But we've talked on the show before about the problems facing modern medicine arising from antibiotic-resistant bacteria building up in the environment. Um, we've invented antibiotics, and the bacteria have adapted to that and pretty much not taken any notice of it, really. So one of the re- one of the reasons this is happening is from overuse or inappropriate use of standard antibiotics in medicine, but also we've seen an increase in recent years of antibacterial cleaners. And not just for toilets and floors, which is you might think, well, of course, you're going to clean your toilet with something antibacterial, but for kitchens and various kind of uh, washing powders are even claiming to be antibacterial. And, of course, antibacterial soaps and soap substitutes for washing your hands. Those ads where there's the, the paranoid mother in a spotlessly white house and she has, like, the, the soap dispenser, which is hands-free. You don't need to touch it. So no germs touch anything and the kids are all, you know, getting soap on their hands and... Got a, got a white halo so, of yes. antibacterial. Oh, so around. awful, the way they market it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well, it's... it's, it's Playing on people's paranoia, which is, you know, yeah. I have to look after yeah. my children. But yeah. specifically um, on women's paranoia. Well, and it's just, mm, yeah, it's, mm. it's awful. Now, two of the most common chemicals used in hand washes and hand soap have just been banned as of September this year by the US Food and Drug Administration. So the FDA stated that the chemicals triclosan and triclocarbon carbon, not carbon, mm-hmm. uh, have little evidence showing they're more effective as hand cleaners than simple soap and water. Right. Um, they also had concerns about long-term effects on environmental buildup of the chemicals, which could lead to further bacterial resistance to those chemicals. Yeah. Um, and some experts have pointed out that you can detect these chemicals in breast milk yeah. and in people's urine and in the urine of newborn babies. Well, they can get into your, into your intestines and, and play havoc with your gut microbiome. Well, that's biosteam, right. Yeah. They, are, they are antibacterial chemicals, so yeah, they, will, yeah. they will have an effect on yep. any bacteria, including the positive ones that live in your gut. And possibly also in the environment, like in waterways and that sort of mm. thing as well. Well, yeah, and there's, you know, there's enzymes and bacteria doing all sorts of jobs all over the place. Yep. Um, they do have important things to do to keep the world ticking well, over Well, when you consider well. that, you know, when you wash your hands, you're doing it in the sink and the water's going down to, like, the treatment plant at Werribee, mm-hmm. um, which relies on bacteria for the whole thing to, like, clean up all the poo. Well, that's yeah, right. Yeah, and you that, don't want any bacteria. You don't want to, yeah, kill all the bac- those bacteria, yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's, you know, there, there's been some speculation about long-term exposure to these chemicals as well as their effects in the environment. So they've also um, been looking at uh, a list of other antimicrobial chemicals that are commonly used in cleaning products and those disposable wipes that seem to be available for just about everything now. Yeah. Um, mm. So there's there's various alcohol combinations that get used for these sort of things, which are pretty broad spectrum and they're not specifically antibacterial. They yeah. just no, kill pretty they're just much yeah, everything. Yeah. Antiseptics. Yeah. Um, like, um, like bleach is also another good one, but you wouldn't put it on your hands. No, you wouldn't want it. Well, no. you have very lily white hands if you kept using bleach on them. Mm. Um, but they've also given the industry time to demonstrate the effectiveness of other products, which include things like benzalkonium chloride, benzothonium chloride and chlorozylenol, which oh. are specific antibacterial chemicals. So the the ones I just mentioned, they're still allowed to sell them until the FDA reviews 
the results that yeah. the industry is supposed to be uh, presenting to them. But some manufacturers have already chosen to opt out and they've started to phase these chemicals out because they're, they're not convinced that they can come up with the evidence to prove that they're any better than uh, the alternatives. Now, interestingly, uh, triclocarban, which is, as I said, common, commonly used in antibacterial bars of soap, is an organochloride which is the same group of chemicals as DDT. Now, it's not as persistent as something like DDT, and it's not supposedly as bioaccumulative as DDT, but they have measured that it can last up to 50 years in the environment. So once it's out there, it's out there. And they they sampled some dust at JFK Airport and found that the last time it had been used at JFK Airport was in the 1960s, and there were still traces right. of this chemical there. So it's it's yeah. a pretty persistent, it's persistent thing. Yeah. Well, what they, I remember saying something about these. Okay, one of the reasons that they that when they ban them is not only because they're the the negative aspects of the use, but they don't do much because they take something like a few hours to kill all the bacteria. And we washing your hand for about like you know a few seconds, they don't are actually doing anything useful. Well, yeah, and and yeah, you've basically washed it off your hands yeah. down the drain yeah. before it can kill any bacteria. Yeah. So there's not really any point. And this is what the FDA's found is that. Yeah. If you just use soap, the the yeah. action of the soap does all of the things you need it to do yeah. to get rid yeah. of all your uh, your bacteria on your on your hands. Do we um, know if um if it's been banned for those those consumer products? Is it still then like banned altogether? Like would it still be used in things like um, hospital settings and that kind of stuff? No. So yeah, they've only they've only put the bans on products that are sold over the counter to right. consumers. You know, from the supermarket or from yeah. the from the corner drugstore, and. Yeah, industrial and medical cleaning applications are yeah. still allowed to use them because obviously they've got a higher risk and hazard yeah. associated with them. And look, most of these products are available in Australia. You can buy this stuff in Australia. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if our local authorities take their lead from the FDA yeah. and start phasing them out for over-the-counter um, purchases. But I'm not exactly sure which branch of government would be responsible for making those decisions yeah. in Australia either. Yeah, look, it's, um, it, um, we did a story on triclosan a couple of years ago, I recall, and, mm. um, and this wasn't on the horizon. Well, there are people talking about it not being much use then. Because um, it's in um, toothpastes and that sort of thing as well. Well, there is some evidence has, that it has that been is useful in, in toothpaste. Yeah, Col- Colgate are still allowed to sell their toothpaste, which has triclosan in it, because yeah. they've been able to demonstrate that it has yeah. some effect yeah. on killing oral bacteria. So mm-hmm. But it's one of those things that it. yeah, it's one of those things that if you saw a product that said kills ninety nine point nine percent of bacteria, pretty much that was anything that had triclosan in it that had that claim on there. So that was mm-hmm. kind of the, the giveaway that it had triclosan in it. But mm-hmm. yeah, it'd be interesting. I think if the um if the manufacturers in the US had already been phasing it out, I wouldn't be surprised if they kind of were doing that here as well because they're just going to move on to the next kind of fad, really. Well that's right. And they've got, you know, they they're global markets that they're talking about. So if they're not going to bother selling one product in one country and another product somewhere else. Mm. So if they're going to phase it out of the big name products and they're probably going to phase it out all over the world anyway. Um, But, you know, it just, it comes back to the same thing of if you want to wash your hands, just soap and water is as good as anything else out there pretty much. Yeah.
That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.